1976, uh, the Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer wrote his book, How Should We Then Live? And in the opening uh, of, his, of the first chapter of his book, he writes this. People have presuppositions, and they will live more consistently on the basis of these presuppositions than even they themselves may realize. By presuppositions, we mean the basic way an individual looks at life, his basic worldview, the grid through which he sees the world. So this book and film series sought to address uh, Western civilization from a Christian uh, or from a Christ-centered worldview or a Christian worldview, to demonstrate specifically how Christianity reaches into not only every part of our personal lives, but also every part of creation, which includes history, which includes art, which includes music, which includes philosophy, and, and, and even power systems and, and, and power structures and so on. That Christianity has actually shaped our world in more ways than most like to admit. Well, this morning, Peter is going to show this same idea from the text. How now should we live according to what Christ has done in our lives, is the question that he is asking uh, these Christians. Since God has done this work in your life, he has given you and I new presuppositions, a new way to look at life, a new grid in which to see the world around us. So the question that stands before us this morning is, how now should we then live as the church? Because if you claim to be a Christian, if I were to ask you or somebody were to ask you, are you a Christian, and your answer is yes, then your life should look drastically different than those who are without Christ. And not different for difference's sake either. I know sometimes we have, you know, we want to dress us, we have to dress a certain way to, to maybe look like a Christian or we don't do certain things or listen to certain music or, or, or you know, so on and so forth because we're Christians and we don't do that. That's, diff- that's being different for difference's sake. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that you are different because you now live in the light of the reality of the gospel. And that's what makes you different. That's what changes your life. So three questions I want to ask of our text this morning. One is, why are we to live this way? Why are we to live this way? Two, how are we to live this way? And then three, what do we have or what do we possess that enables us to live this way? So why are we to live this way? How are we to live this way? And what do we possess that enables us to live this way? So first, why are we to live this way? Look at verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you know anything basic Bible study, you know that if you see the word therefore and every preacher in the world says this and reminds their congregation of it, but you always look at what, what happened beforehand. That's why you look, you, the therefore is there. So when Peter says therefore here, he is reaching back to all of verses 1 through 12. So he's saying, uh, because this is true, 
because all of this is true about you and about what God has done in Christ, now this is how you should live your life. So this is the beginning of of Peter just giving these instructions of of what it looks like to walk with Jesus in the day-to-day. So this is how we respond to God's mercy and grace. And because of this, uh, and because of this, it's, it's more helpful to read this verse, verse 13, in this way. Set your hope fully on the, on the grace by preparing your mind for action and by being sober. That might be some of the translation that you have in your Bible right now. But set your hope fully on the grace. How? By preparing your mind for action and by being sober. Sober. So because of God's merciful work in your life, you now respond to this mercy by, resp- right, by preparing your mind for action and by being sober-minded at the same time. And it's important not to get these two things out of order either. The, the indicative, which is what God has done for us in Christ, this action, is always the basis of the imperative, the response to the action how we should now live our lives. So to confuse the order there would be to, uh, to preach works righteousness, to say that you earn your righteousness by the good works that you do. Instead of seeing holiness as the result of God's grace and power and as a response to the love of God in Christ. So these two, these two participles that we have here help explain how believers are to set their hope fully on Christ. So the first one we read is to prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for action. Another way this is translated is girding up the loins of your mind, which is kind of a weird uh, phrase. It's not a phrase that we use. It's Old Testament language. Um, That means back then they they wore long flowing robes, and you can imagine that's not something that you would want to run a race in. So whenever uh, you had to go do something that was quick or hard, you would gird up the loins of your robe and hold them so that you could be free to, to run or do whatever it is that you have to do. So uh, it, it was communicating doing something serious, a serious work or something like that. So a phrase that we might use today is rolling up your shirt sleeves, which doesn't really have the same punch as girding up your loins. Um, but... It's the idea of taking seriously the matter at hand. A symbol of hard work and action. So in Exodus 12, 11, uh, it says, In this manner, preparing for the Passover that was about to happen, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Which means that that you are readying yourself for this work that is about to take place. You need to be ready. And in the New Testament, Luke chapter 12, verse 35 says, stay, stay dressed for action and keep your lamp burning. So to gird up the loins of your minds means that the Christian life is not one of idleness. Rather, it's the biblical idea of discipline and readiness. So being so ready for the return of Christ, your future hope, that it changes the way that you live your life now on this earth. So what does this look like, practically speaking? Well, let me illustrate, give you an illustration of this first. Think about a person 
who is expecting a child. So all of us know, at least know you've either, you've either given birth or you know of someone who has given birth or someone that is awaiting a child that they are, they are, they are adopting or anything like that. Um, you'll notice that almost immediately when, you, when this person finds out they're, they're pregnant or they're awaiting this child, almost immediately they begin to ready themselves for this future little blessing. Someone they have not even seen yet, but they already love them deeply. And this is, and this is the love that, that changes the way that they live now. So they start reading books they would never have read before on raising a child. They start using uh, uh, lingo and, and language that they've never used before. And they start noticing details of the world they've never noticed before. They start to realize how dangerous the, the corners on cabinets are and how busy the intersection or the street is in front of their house. There's little details. And they sacrifice in ways they never thought they would. Sleep, convenience, time. And this is before the baby even comes into the world. So the same is true for us now as believers in Christ. As we await our Savior's return, we live ready and we live a life that is changed. And it's motivated first and foremost by the love that Jesus has for us but then it's also motivated for the love that we have for them because of what he's done for us. I was reading in 1 Corinthians 1 yesterday, and Paul tells these Christians, uh, and if you know anything about the church of Corinth, they were not, it was not a healthy church, but there were believers in it. And, and one of the first things that Paul does is he gives thanks for these Corinthian believers. And one of the things that he gives thanks for that kind of jumped out to me uh, in that, that chapter is, is, is he talks about how the gospel has shaped their speech and their knowledge. The Paul, Paul is saying to them, look, I am so thankful that I can, I can hear the gospel in the way that you speak to each other. In, in the, uh, in the, uh, I was reading through Pilgrim's Progress a little bit this morning, and uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and he talks about the, the language of Canaan. Paul is saying, you have the language of God's people. But he also says, I see it in your knowledge. I see it in the way that you gather knowledge, the way in which you are discerning the world around you. The gospel is at work. Everything about you, Paul is saying, is being transformed, even the way you speak and think. And this kind of change, for us, shows up in, in what books you read. It shows up in how you speak. Do you have the language of Canaan? And how you treat your neighbor? how you see and understand the world around you. So readying your minds for action. And then the second participle that tells believers how to set their mind or hope fully on Christ is being sober-minded. So I know uh, we commonly associate the word sober with the opposite of, of, of being drunk. That's typically how we use it. But Peter is not telling believers to merely refrain from drunkenness. That is not his point here. And later on in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter uses the same language. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, 
Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then Paul even uses the same language in 1 Thessalonians 5. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And then 2 Timothy 4, 5. And as for you always, speaking to Timothy, be sober-minded. So this idea of being sober-minded... Sorry about that. i got to drink water. This idea of being sober-minded is, is of having a clear head and a sharp mind. One commentator that I'm using, um, named Karen Jobes, which is a great commentary on 1 Peter, she says this, and it's so good. She says, Peter wishes his readers to avoid any form of mental or spiritual intoxication that would confuse the reality that Christ has revealed and deflect or distract them from a life steadfastly fixed on the grace of Christ. And then pointing ahead to chapter 4, verse 7, and chapter 5, verse 8, she goes on to say, Self-control of mind facilitates prayer and an awareness of the devil's ways. So to not be sober-minded is to become dull to the reality of God in your life and in this world. Which means that makes your heart vulnerable to the attractions of the world. Like I said, I was uh, reading through Pilgrim's Progress today because this actually brought up something. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I highly recommend it. But uh, there's one part where Christian, the, the character Christian, is headed to the celestial city, so he's headed towards heaven, so he has to go through all of these, these temptations and, and all, all sorts of things that, that come along his path. So, so Christian and uh, another character named Faithful come upon a city called Vanity. And within that city, a fair is being thrown called Vanity Fair, just like the magazine, yes. And so in the midst of that, they, around them, this town is meant to, to tempt and to destroy all of those who, who have to enter through it. And, and, the, and John Bunyan says that, that every person has to, has to pass through vanity on their way to the celestial city. There's no way around it. And so in the midst of it, they're walking through vanity fair, and they're being tempted with all sorts of things, and, and all of the, the attendants there are, 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 are throwing things at them and, 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 and uh, deriding them because of the way they look and the way they speak. And it has this one line in it where, uh, where Christian, uh, and it's kind of funny to think about it now and to picture it, but he, run, he, he gets to a point where he puts his fingers in his ears and begins to run through Vanity Fair because he is trying to avoid the temptations that are being thrown about him. And that's one way we can avoid it. In a, in a, you know, I don't recommend just walking around with your fingers in your ears, but you get the idea. The Christian was so uh, enthralled with the, with the celestial city that he was willing to do whatever it took not to enter into these temptations. So how do we avoid doing that? How do we avoid uh, uh, not entering into these temptations? How do, we, how do we plug our ears to the cries of this world? How are we now to live then as Christians? Where our second point, 
in verses 14 through 17 shows us three ways that we can do this. One is don't conform. Two is be holy. And three is to fear God. So first, don't conform. In verse 14, look there. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So Peter is already calling them obedient children, so we know a little bit about these believers, that they are obedient, that they are following Jesus faithfully. But then he is telling them how obedient children are to live. By not conforming to the passions of their former ignorance. So what are the passions of former ignorance? The, uh, the band uh, Wild Rivers has a line in, in one of their songs called Bedrock that describes what I think Peter is trying to get his readers to avoid. And this is what the, the, the very first verse says. It's great. It says, I got this friend I like to carry on my shoulders, and he looks a lot like me. I sort of hoped we'd grow apart as we got older, but he's getting awful heavy. And then the song goes on to describe how this sort of posture of, of, of carrying around your old self is crushing. But you can never really get anywhere because you have this, this uh, friend on your shoulders weighing you down. Because when you live in this way, carrying around your old self, you're living a life that is dedicated to living against God. And therefore, it's a life we need to, as Christians, to continually grow apart from as followers of Jesus. That's what sanctification is. So this is what Paul was getting after in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. He says this, To put off your old self, or, your, or the old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. And the way we continually grow apart from our old self is through this pursuit of holiness. Look at verses 15 and 16. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what that tells us there, a little bit, is that we don't get rid of our old self simply by just stop sinning. It's not how we get rid of it. That alone is not enough. God's people are to be holy, which means to be set apart, to be different from the world around them. Because to only see the call to holiness as stop sinning is to leave a void that will eventually be filled with something else. That something else would probably be legalism, not the gospel. But it also, because it is legalism, gives, this, gives you the, the unbiblical idea that it's according to your own abilities and your own work that you can accomplish salvation. The Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish minister from the 1700s. And he's probably, uh, if, you, if you know anything about him, you, you probably know this sermon. This is a most well-known sermon. It's, it's titled, The Expulsive Power 
of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. And this is what he says in it. He says, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have a something to lay hold of, and which, if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place, would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. So what we must do, what Chalmers is getting at, is to replace our affection for sin with another more powerful new affection. Because the mindset or belief that you can somehow defeat sin on your own will then give birth to this unbiblical idea that it's all up to you to save yourself. And you can't do that. You'll find that out very quickly once you start trying. Pastor John Piper says in his comments on Chalmers' work, he says, quote, the most effective way to kill our own sin is by the power of a superior pleasure. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it is more pleasant or less painful than the way of righteousness. So, bondage to sin is broken only by a stronger attraction, a more compelling joy. So Peter is saying, that one's attraction to their old self must instead be replaced with a stronger attraction to the holiness of God, first and foremost. Because the contrast to conforming to the world would be being holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Because our old passions are in direct contradiction to the holiness of God. So one way to see this, Christian brother or sister, is to think about your life before Christ. So if you think, holiness, I don't think I can do that. I mean, this morning alone just could tell you, I am not a holy person. But that's not the point. That's, that's going back and relying upon uh, what you do or you don't do. It's not relying on the grace and mercy of God in Christ. So one thing you can do to kind of get yourself out of that rut, is to think about your life before Christ. Think about it right now. Think about your life before Christ. And now think about your life now. Does it look different? Have you been changed? It should. Even if it's incremental. Even if it's just, it's just, you know, uh, just the small, the small fruit, like I always call blueberry-sized fruits, just the tiniest bit. So Peter takes this language of holiness uh, from Leviticus chapter nineteen, verse two. He's quoting Leviticus here in the Old Testament to point out the fact that it's God Himself that calls you to be holy, as He is holy. And I admit that this, is, this verse is heavy, and it sounds difficult. To be holy as God is holy seems like a lot. Seems like a lot to ask. But to be holy is simply to pattern ourselves after the Father. And the pattern of the Father is love. 
More specifically, to be holy, as Jesus tells us, to be holy is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, and the second is like it, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it looks like to be holy. To love like the Father. To love as you have been loved. Which is a life that is motivated by what God, out of His love, has done for us in Christ and what He will do for us in the future. So what Peter is saying is instead of conforming to this world or or conforming to to your former affections, these former affections are now exposed and expelled by a greater affection, a greater joy, which is setting one's hope completely on Jesus Christ and His coming again. And the way in which we do that is by a relentless pursuit of holiness. So don't conform, but be holy. The third directive that he gives here in the second point is that uh, that it, inform, it actually informs these first two about how we are to live as Christians, and that is to fear God. Fear God. Verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter here, by the use of that word if, which is the right word to use there out of the original languages, uh, Peter is kind of giving them a hypothetical situation. Because he knows they're, they're, he's already called them believers a number of times, but he's saying, look, if, if you call, call on him as father, you know him to be a judge who judges impartially to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You are, you are to be motivated by... If God is your Father, you are to be motivated by a fear of God. So do you know how a man could shoot his grandmother and then drive, consciously drive, several miles to an elementary school and shoot and kill 19 children and two adults? you know how a man could do that? Zero fear of God is how. None whatsoever. The wisdom tradition of the Old Testament says the beginning of wisdom, which I like to translate that as the beginning of seeing true reality, the beginning of seeing the world as it really is, is the fear of the Lord. And then if you jump into the law, it, it continues on with this, with, with this language as well in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God. How? By walking in His ways and by fearing Him. So I think the first question we have to answer when it comes to the fear of the Lord is, what is is it not? What is it not? And let me just say, this fear that that Peter is talking about here and what the Bible brings up is not cowering in a corner or hiding under the covers type of fear. It's not an immobilizing fear. It's not a fear that is meant to strike terror or paranoia in your heart where you're, you're constantly looking over your shoulder waiting for God to strike you down. 
It's not the fear he's talking about. The fear that the Bible speaks of is one of reverence for God. It's a fear that knows that God holds the power to judge sin. So Peter says, not only is God your father, who is loving and good and kind and faithful, and he's the, the best father, he, 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 out, he, he outshines any other father on this earth. Not only is God your father, but he is also your judge at the very same time. This is how one commentator explained it this way. He says, there is a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence. And then he goes on to give this example. A confident driver also possesses a healthy fear of an accident that prevents him from driving foolishly. And so the same is true here for Christians. A genuine fear or a confident fear of judgment hinders the believer from giving into that which would lead them back into the passions of their former ignorance, of their former life. Because we fear a righteous judge, a good judge, a fatherly judge. So before coming to Christ, uh, we do not have this kind of knowledge, nor do we care about it. But in Christ, the knowledge of our sin and God's wrath upon it is brought to our attention. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be this mirror that is placed before you to show you that you cannot do this. That you need someone else to intervene. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So this means that the fear of judgment still plays a role in the Christian life. And I believe a lot of the reasons why some of you play patty cake with sin in your life is because you don't live with this kind of fear. That for some reason, after you become a Christian, you think that God is just ignoring your sin, and that's what grace is. That is not grace. Grace is not God ignoring your sin. And so I think a, a, just a renewal of what it means to fear the Lord, we all need that. The Apostle Paul himself realized it. And he even said that if he did not uh, live the message that he was preaching, that he was preaching to others, that he would be damned. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. These are Paul's own words to the Corinthian church. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified, or I myself should be damned. If I don't do what I'm saying, or what I'm preaching to you, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which is simply understanding that in your sin, before a holy God, you stand underneath His wrath, and there is no way out. 
You need rescue. And this fear doesn't immobilize us, but rather it inspires us to live faithfully. So friend, if you are not in Christ today, I am compelled to tell you that, that this is where you find yourself currently. I know you're, in an, you're, in a, you're amongst uh, friends here and people who are being very nice to you, but your current state is that you stand underneath the judgment of God currently. You stand underneath His wrath. Whether you believe that to be true yet or not, that is your posture right now. And you stand alone under a terrible judgment for your sin And there is no way of escape except through Christ. That God the judge, in his grace and mercy, is the only one who makes this possible. And that is what informs all of those who have called on the name of Christ and are saved, and which is what answers our third and final question this morning, which is, what do we have that enables us to live this way? that Peter is calling believers to. So these final verses of our text show us what we already possess that enables us to prepare our minds for action, that enables us to live obediently, that enables us to not conform to our old passions, that enables us to be holy as God is holy and to live in reverent fear of Him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what shapes our understanding of all of this. That because of Christ, we are able to live in this way. And only because of Christ, we are able to live this way. So if you've been sitting here during these last two points, trying to think about ways in which you can somehow earn your way into God's favor, and you have been left stumped because you can't figure out a way, because you've tried all of it, you are in luck this morning. Because verses 18 through 21 says all of the work has already been done for you. In fact, there was never a time that ever existed that you could save yourself. Verse 18 says you were ransomed from your futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers. So another way you could say this is Jesus paid the price for your freedom from your slavery to sin. And your slavery to sin is something that has been passed down, starting with Adam. It's been passed down from generation to generation. It's called the imputation of sin. And we're all infected by it. There's no escaping it. And there is no way that you can ransom yourself out of it. And no one else can do that for you. That's what the second part of verse 18 says. That Christ did not uh, not, uh, purchase you with perishable things such as silver or gold because those things will not ransom you out of your sin. Psalm 49, 7-8, through 8, which I'm sure this is where Peter kind of got this language from. He says, uh, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. There is nothing in you that can ransom yourself. There is nothing in you that can ransom your spouse. There is nothing in you that can ransom your children. It is purely dependent upon the grace and mercy of God in Christ. 
And the psalmist recognizes it in chapter 49, Psalm 49. And, and later in, in, the, in the chapter, in verse 15, he says, But God, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And then Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And then he emphasizes this, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Peter is saying that Jesus bought you. That Jesus ransomed you, not with silver or gold or anything that, per- that can perish, but with his own precious blood. And in these final two verses, they tell us that this was set in motion by the all-knowing, eternal God, sovereign God, from the very beginning of time. Look at verses 20 and 21. He was foreknown, there's that word again, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So what Peter is saying is that the sacrifice of Christ was not an afterthought. It wasn't plan B because the law didn't work. Or, or somehow things got out of hand and got out of control, and so God was saying, well, I guess I have to resort to this next plan, that I really didn't want to do this, but you guys have forced my hand, and I have to do this. That was not how it worked. So what we learned then is that Jesus wins for us not only our salvation, but a life that is lived to the glory of God. A life that is prepared for action. A life that, is, that no longer conforms to the pattern of this world. A life that is in the pursuit of holiness always. Which means that the gospel enables us to show ourselves faithful in all of life. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are, we are thankful that it is not up to us. That it is not up to anything that we, we can do or, or, or even in the things that we don't do. That you are not looking at those things to say, this is what makes you a Christian. Or this is what has earned your salvation. Or this is what makes me look favorably upon you. But God, that it is only uh, through Christ alone that we are saved. And so, God, I pray that we would always be a church that is, uh, that is constantly leaning into uh, our salvation that is only found in Christ. That our minds would be prepared for action. That, uh, that we would be sober-minded as we walk into this world. That we would be able to, to, to uh, put our fingers in our ears to, to, to shut out the cries of this world and to pursue holiness. So, God, I pray that you would do that in our midst. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.